Hi, welcome to episode 543 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott. And is there anything better than orchestral versions of old disco songs? I don't think so. In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four. Starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 645. And today is Fantastic Four 543 from January 2007. What the hell? Now they're just messing with my mind. Can they do that? Last issue was dated March. Come on, Susie. Don't Leave Us Hanging by Dwayne McDuffie and Mike McCone. And here's another significant issue for me. As I mentioned before, I stopped reading the Fantastic Four back when they cancelled Volume 1 for the first time, at the end of the Tom DeFalco run, and launched Volume 2, Heroes Reborn. And I didn't start reading the FF again until this issue 10 years later. And I only read most of the bash of the issues in that 10 year gap when I purchased the 44 Years of the Fantastic Four DVD-ROM that came out in 2005. Now this seems like an odd issue to start restart with because as the banner on the cover says, it's a Civil War epilogue. And I only read Civil War when it came out in a trade paperback, so I picked up this issue knowing nothing about Civil War at all. Now, what this issue had going for it is, A, it's a double-sized anniversary issue celebrating the 45th anniversary of the Fantastic Four. B, I had read somewhere that the Black Panther and and Storm would be joining the team, and I had to check that out. C, and this is probably the main reason why, two of my favorite comic book artists of all time, Mike Allred and Paul Pope, contribute backup stories to this issue. And specifically, I will buy anything and everything by Paul Pope. Love, love, love the Pope. But before we get back to these, before we get to these backup stories, we have to go through the main story the Civil War epilogue. And now that Civil War is over, how can Dwayne McDuffie reunite Reed Richards with the rest of the team? And the issue begins with Johnny and Franklin watching television, a new show called Late Line, which sounds like uh, one, of the, one of those modern news parody shows, but it seems like it'd be a serious show akin to uh, Nightline. Johnny calls out to Ben, telling him the show's starting, and in Valeria's bedroom, She's wearing the, this pink dress, and Ben is having trouble getting her to change clothes into her pajamas. She flat out says, No! Well, what do you expect? Ben ain't exactly an expert in getting women out of their dresses. He ends up agreeing to let her stay up late to watch TV, and in return, she puts on her PJs. What's the deal with pajamas anyway? Kids wear pajamas, and old people wear pajamas. My dad goes to bed. He puts on pajamas. I can't imagine going to bed wearing long sleeves and long pants. Unless I lived in an igloo. What's the deal with pajamas? They're crazy. So they settle down to watch a special episode of Night... I mean, uh, Late Line called The Fantastic Four. A look back. Well, it wouldn't be an anniversary issue if we didn't take a look back at the origin of The Fantastic Four. So, this, so the show starts with an interview 
with a security guard who was on duty the night that Reed and the others broke in and stole the spaceship. He thought Reed was just coming in to work on the rocket, and he thought it was odd he had three other people with him. He was surprised when they took off for the spaceship, and he was fired as a result. You know, but fortunately, he rebounded and got his life back together as a greeter at Walmart. Next, the dean at Eastern State University. Could the name of that school be any more vague? He says that Reed has always been brilliant and had already done revolutionary work in astrophysics and information technology before he became Mr. Fantastic. He doesn't understand what went wrong on that trip to space with Reed's hyperdrive prototype rocket. It was cosmic rays. They rewrote part of their genetic code. I'm not sure why the Dean doesn't understand that. Marsha Hardesty, a prize-winning photographer, is interviewed, and she says that the FF were strange and bizarre, but they saved everyone from an attack by the Mole Man. They were unusual heroes in that they didn't wear masks, their identities were well known, and in a press conference from back then, Reed is pledging to use his powers to help mankind. I assume he's talking about mankind in general, and not the wrestler. Valeria says her dad looked skinnier back then. Ben replies that they were all skinnier back then. Johnny wonders when Reed and Sue are coming back. Ben says that they'll be back, but wonders if they're going to stay. Meanwhile, out on the Fantastic Car, flying over the city, Reed and Sue have stopped to have a moonlit chat. Sue asks Reed if he's trying to be romantic. Of course, they have a lot to work through after recent issues, meaning Reed has been acting like a total asshole through the Civil War. She says she doesn't doubt that Reed loves her. It's that he doesn't seem to trust her, which is her problem. No, I think the problem is that he went off the deep end and became totally pro-fascist, like my parents during the 2016 election. Reed says he explained to her why he did what he did, and she reminds him that he didn't really explain it to her. She was eavesdropping on him while invisible, while he was explaining it to the mad thinker of all people. Considering that she was using her powers to spy on Reed, that would be a complete turnoff for me, if I were Reed. He tries to explain that he was only trying to protect her, which she doesn't quite understand, and neither do I. He goes on to plead with her, telling her that he loves her, and his life was empty until he met her. He says, I wasn't a man until you came into my life. Considering that he was a college student, and she was like 12 when they first met, that is a very creepy thing for him to say. She says, I loved you with all my heart from the moment I first met you. Reed brings up the age issue. He actually brings up the age issue. Sue, you were 13. Oh, she was 13. Oh, that's not so bad then. He was renting a room with her aunt one summer. He was in college, and he was 20 years old. Yeah, he was 20 years old. You know, I knew Sue was young, and I knew Reed was in college. The last time this subject came up, I wasn't ex sure exactly how old Reed was. Originally, Reed was a World War II veteran, which clearly, that's not the case anymore. And I don't know if he's still a veteran or not. It's been a long time since any of that was mentioned. Still, if Sue was 13, and Reed was 20, they have really lowered the age gap between them. I think this is the first time they've actually firmly established what the age gap between them is. Seven years. That's hard to believe. She's always appeared to be a woman in her 20s, and with the gray temples in his hair, he's always looked to be like a middle-aged man in his 40s, which is what I think he was originally supposed to be. But I guess he's in his 30s now.
mid 30s late she's in her late 20s he's in his mid 30s that's not such a bad difference it, the gap between always seemed bigger than that sue says that when they met later as adults she fell in love with him he was tall handsome brilliant curious adventurous and good she doesn't mention that he was also very rich she thought he was a good person he could do no wrong but now she knows better but she still loves him but it will never be the same she says of course the civil war stuff will blow over after they leave the book for a while and come back back on the tv show they discuss how dr doom dragged the baxter building out into space but the ff eventually defeated dr doom i don't know if they mentioned that a dr doom knockoff dragged the baxter building out into space a second time and succeeded in destroying it the show turns to a interview with black panther who sings the praises of Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four, saying that Doctor Doom will never defeat them, and that they just aren't a, they aren't just a normal team, they're a family. And in another interview, the Submariner says that Doctor Doom must be jealous of Reed's superior intellect. And they even land an interview with Doctor Doom himself, who says that Reed's interference in his affairs has destabilized the political balance of the entire world. Not true. And Reed has built and run a secret prison, this is true, and he plans to export his evil to the rest of the world, wrong, and the world will one day beg Dr. Doom to put a stop to Reed Richards' evil plans, wrong, but that would be interesting. Ben Grimm hurls his popcorn at the TV. Of course, that was Johnny's popcorn, and that sets Johnny off, and they start playfully fighting with each other, and without Reed or Sue there to stop them, I bet things are going to get broke. And back in that documentary, they've landed a very rare interview with Willie Lumpkin. Yeah, when you really want to get to the truth about somebody, ask their mailman. I mean, my mailman doesn't know shit about me. Other than the fact that I still get my Netflix movies by mail, old school. So whenever I'm going to Netflix and chill with someone, I gotta be like, Okay, we'll have to check the mail tomorrow and see. Willie says that when Galactus first showed up, Everyone thought the world was going to end, but the FF saved them all. And then he saved the city from the Atlanteans, the Hulk, Scrolls, Doctor Doom, Ronan the Accuser, and so many more. And yet they always rem remained nice to Willie Lumpkin, saying, Good morning, Willie. How are you doing, Willie? Good to see those packages didn't blow your arms off, Willie. Good to see the mail that hasn't infected you with anthrax, Willie. They get some useless comments from Wyatt Wingfoot about him being treated like family by the FF, and Peter Parker tells a story about how he tried to join the FF once, but when he found out that they, they didn't pay, he was embarrassed. They chat with Power Man, who mentions that he joined the team for a brief time. I love those guys. Anytime they need me, I'm there, he says. They talk to Sharon Ventura, the She-Thing, still a rock monster, who says that she and the Thing once had a fling. And She-Hulk says that she saw so much of the universe as a member of the Fantastic Four, it was amazing. Next, there's a clip of The Thing on the Conan O'Brien show. And Ben calls Reed Stretcho and says that's his nickname for Reed. He's his buddy. He can call him what he wants. And Conan replies, I would not argue with a man of your girth. Ugh, that's an uncomfortable turn of phrase. Ben mentions they've been all kinds of places. The Negative Zone, the Skrull Homeworld, Sailing with Blackbeard the Pirate, and in an interview Johnny's having on some talk show with the weirdest set I've ever seen, he says that he first joined up to keep an eye on his sister, but later he came to love helping people. 
And in an interview with Sue, she says that it's been an extraordinary opportunity to give back to a world that has been so good to them. The interviewer says that some people say that Sue is, a, is the moral compass of the team, and without her, Reed would flounder, and there would be no Fantastic Four. You know, I don't know about that. Crystal was a member for a very long time, and they did okay without Sue. Next, they bring on Wolverine and Tony Stark to talk about recent events, and Ben takes the kids to bed. Tony defends Reed, saying that he's doing what he can to keep people safe, even though it has caused friction within his family. Johnny and Ben are discussing whether or not they can still follow Reed. Ben says that when Reed is right, he will. Johnny says he will too, if he has the chance. The episode of, of Late Line ends, and Reed and Sue come home. They say they've made some good strides in patching their relationship back together. Johnny and Ben start to stack their hands together, expecting Reed and Sue to do the same, just like they did back in issue one. But Reed and Sue decline. They're leaving for a while, they say, to go work on their marriage. But they have a couple of good replacements in store. The door opens up and it's the Black Panther. And at this point, it's his new wife, Storm, from the X-Men. You know, someone realized, hey, they're both black. They're both from Africa. They should be married. Such a crazy out-of-left-field marriage. But here they are for a brief run. And the last time Reed and Sue left the team, they were replaced by Crystal and the She-Thing which was a certified disaster. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately for me doing this podcast, I like the upcoming issues with the new Fantastic Four. And that's the end of the main story. And we have backup number one, a story called If This Be, if this be Anniversary by writer Stan Lee. I guess that's plot and script, which is the first in a long time for him. Pencils by Nick Dragota and Inks by Mike Allred. I was kind of disappointed that Mike Allred wasn't doing the pencils, but holy crap, you would never know the difference. The art looks 100% like something Mike Allred would have drawn himself. One of my all-time favorite comic books, by the way, is Madman by Mike Allred. And no, it's not about a superhero that works at a 1960s advertising agency. So this backup story, which brings back the Mole Man, the original FF villain from 45 years earlier, and the story begins with the Mole Man, leading an attack on the surface world and the army calls Mr. Fantastic and he hangs up on him and we see Reed hanging up and he tells Ben let some other superheroes save the world for a change it's DC's turn and no I don't think he's talking about DC comics I think he's referring to Dick Cheney he should come and shoot the mole man in the face Sue asks Reed what's wrong and he says it's their 45th anniversary with Marvel and nobody cares hey it's the 55th anniversary of the Fantastic Four this year, in 2016, and they don't even have a book. So this Reed should not complain. At least they have a book. So out on the streets, the, the Mole Man is leading his subterranean people as they attack the city and cause chaos. He says every street and every building will be theirs. Back in the Baxter building, Ben wonders why they don't look any older, even though they've been around for 45 years. Reed says it has to be the Cosmic Rays and that he thinks it's time they retired. Johnny notices something that gets him excited. Stan Lee's on his way up here to see us. They start trying to make up excuses not to see him, but it's too late. Stan the man arrives, carrying a bag of groceries? I doubt he carries his own groceries. He probably pays his brother to do it for him. He says he has a present for Franklin. What? Nothing for Valeria? 
I guess maybe he's like me and he doesn't want to acknowledge that little miscarriage of a character. He notices some commotion out the window down on the street. Looks like an alien invasion. Or a movie. Or a movie about an invasion, he says. Franklin runs in, saying he heard something about a present. Stan's gift is a set of alphabet blocks, which Franklin doesn't seem all that interested in. Sue mentions to Stan that Franklin is a little too old for that. Back with the Army General, he calls for his helicopter, saying he's going to go see Mr. Fantastic himself, and he flies off. So the Mole Man continues to wreak havoc in the city, and at the offices of Marvel Comics, the editor-in-chief wonders why the Fantastic Four aren't helping out. I'm wondering why the Avengers, or the X-Men, or Spider-Man, or Daredevil, or Moon Knight, nobody else bothers to help out either. The editor-in-chief wonders if Reed wants something, a bigger percentage of the t-shirt sales, but how can you get a bigger percent of nothing? Does he want the name above the title of the comics? He asks. You know, I just thought of something and I looked it up. There has never been any kind of Mr. Fantastic comic book ever. For a character to have been around for so long and not have any comics, no miniseries, nothing. That's pretty amazing. Even Sue has one comic book of her own. It's a one-shot called Captain Universe Invisible Woman, which doesn't exactly sound like a winner. The editor-in-chief wonders if Reed wants a new artist and a writer on their comic. Huh, that's an odd thing to ask, just as the Fantastic Four is getting a new writer and an artist, and maybe Reed thinks they need a new editor-in-chief. Bingo! Sounds good to me. So Sue, Ben, and Johnny don't agree with Reed. They're not going to sit around and do nothing. It's like Civil War II already. So before they leave, Reed decides to join them, saying that he can't let them fight without him. Well, they've been fighting without Reed for the last six months. Why start now? I'm sure Stan Lee doesn't know about this. You know, I wonder if Stan Lee even read Civil War. Oh, good lord. He would have been horrified. Stan Lee chimes in and says that maybe the FF can defeat the Mole Man without fighting. So Stan Lee runs down to talk to the Mole Man. And you know, at this point, 10 years ago, Stan Lee was what? 90? I doubt he was running anywhere. But it's a fantasy. The FF looked out the window and they wonder if things went well with Stan and the Mole Man. They're about to leave when Stan Lee shows up with the Mole Man by his side. He says the Mole Man wants peace. And what did Stan Lee say to the Mole Man to make him change his mind? He promised the Mole Man a cameo in the next Marvel movie. And then Stan promises the FF that Marvel will throw them the world's biggest party on their 50th anniversary. So it took a while. But the Mole Man finally did get his cameo in last year's disastrous FF movie. And even then, only as his pre-Mole Man self. And as for the FF's 50th anniversary in 2011, they celebrated by bringing the book back from cancellation. It had been gone for about a year, and they brought it back with issue 600, skipping over like a year's worth of numbers. Well, we'll get to that next year sometime. So the story ends with Ben hugging the rest of the FF and Stan Lee. You know, getting hugged by the Thing would totally break Stan Lee's old man back. And that is the end of the story. Clearly, I don't think this story takes place in continuity. And that brings up to the next backup story, A Day at the Races, Story and Art by Paul Pope. Now this is probably the main reason I purchased this comic back in 2007. I love Paul Pope, one of my favorite comic book creators of all time. Most of his stuff is like indie, black and white stuff. 
and my complete run of Pope's THB comics are probably some of the most rarest, valuable comics I own. When I saw that he'd be doing a backup story in the world's greatest comic magazine, I was pretty excited. This may be the only Marvel work he's done that I can think of. He's done a few other things for DC, but hardly any Marvel work. But I should not have been excited, not at all. First of all, the artwork. You know, I think he's one of those artists that looks better in, in black and white than he does in color. And his version of The Thing may be the worst version ever committed to paper. Ben looks like an orange monster covered in squiggly lines, like Pope didn't want to draw all those damn rocks. So anyway, the story starts some time ago, it says, in an auto repair shop where Johnny's working on one of his hot rods, and his old pal Wyatt Wingfoot is there, I guess to help, but he seems more interested in seeing if there's any sports on television. When Johnny uses his flames to work on the car, Wyatt accuses him of showing off. Johnny says he's no show-off. He's not a ham. And they see a news report on television about Spider-Man. And Johnny says, that is a ham. He's a Spider-Ham, I guess you could say. He says everything he does is a publicity stunt. Johnny says he actually does stuff. You know, he saves alien princesses beats up the Super Scroll and Doctor Doom and the FF get credit and Johnny never does. You know, I've read every issue of the Fantastic Four and 99% of the time Johnny's flames do no good and he ends up getting knocked unconscious and really doesn't contribute much to the FF success. Although he does look good, except drawn here by Paul Pope, so I bet they still sell a lot of FF posters to teenage girls. In that way, he contributes. Wyatt Wingfoot suggests he might be jealous of Spider-Man. And just then, Johnny gets a text message. You know, this might be the first reference to texting here in the pages of the Fantastic Four. From Ben, telling him to check out Spider-Man on television. We see Ben thank Reed for whipping up these things he can put on his thumbs, which allow him to type the little keypad on his Blackberry. Johnny texts back, saying, Buzz off, you big orange ape. Do I bug you every time the Hulk is on TV? Meanwhile, at the Daily Bugle, Peter Parker has shown up with some photos of Spider-Man to sell to J. Jonah Jameson, who ask, How many attack pieces do you think I want to run in a week? I can answer that. Seven. He asks, what's wrong with Peter? It's like he's the president of the Spider-Man fan club. He says he wants something with more commercial appeal, like pictures of Johnny Storm. Ouch. Now obviously, this scene takes place before Spider-Man reveals a secret identity to the world. So that weekend, at the racetrack, Johnny arrives to take part in the race. And he's got a hot redhead by his side. It's Crystal. Now women are going crazy. Everyone is trying to take photos. Peter Parker can't get a good shot. And why is Crystal there? She even kisses him before the race. Does this story take place in the 1960s? The inclusion of Johnny texting on his flip phone, of all things, kind of firmly places this story in the present of 2007. Just as the race is about to start, Johnny looks up and he sees Spider-Man on one of the nearby metal towers. He gets so agitated, his hand catches fire and the car explodes. He threatens to burn the mask off Spider-Man's face, but first, he has to put out the fire on the destroyed race car. Spider-Man hangs up his automatic camera, aiming down at the Human Torch so he can get those Johnny Storm picks that Jonah wanted. But then, he jumps down and he starts fighting with him. You know, won't this piss off Jameson? 
finally, some human torch picks, but they include Spider-Man. Crystal steps in and breaks up the fight, telling them to act like adults. They're supposed to be the good guys, and this calms both of them down. When they go to shake hands, Johnny pulls his hand away, saying, Psych! And you still can't join the FF, you goon! Yeah, he'll join the FF over Johnny's dead body. Spider-Man says he'd rather join the Girl Scouts than join any team with Johnny as a member. And at the Baxter Building, over breakfast that morning, Ben is pointing out a couple of stories in the Daily Bugle. One story says, Spider-Man apprehends Mysterio after foiled jewel heist. And another story, Human Torch wrecks Price's sports car in track mishap. Buzz off, you pile of rocks, Johnny says. And that is the end of the story. Yawn. I didn't think much of these two backup stories. In the anniversary issue as a whole, one of the lesser of the anniversary issues. I guess getting stuck tying up loose ends over Civil War didn't leave Dwayne McDuffie much room for anything else. But with this issue, Mike McCone moves on and we get a new artist next issue, which is where it feels like Dwayne McDuffie's run really begins. So if you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, Dave Elliott, PodcastFF. Or you can download other episodes of iTunes or at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. <laughs>